have to put my glasses on these days. Um, The reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 4. It can be found on page 1180. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at the last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, In the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your very kind and warm welcome. It is an absolute delight to be with you. And it's a particular delight to renew my friendship with Phil. We met a very long time ago uh, when we were students uh, together and we were doing geography. I can still see Phil, Phil's room. I, I remember the very first time I went there. I can see it in my mind now in Emmanuel College in Cambridge. And uh, it's just been a joy to know that God has had his good hand on Phil. And he has been used as a servant of God to bless so many people for so long. So Phil, it is a, 
a joy to be with you and a privilege to stand here bringing God's word. So please do have that Bible passage open if you have. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you worry? Do you worry? How much do you worry about? What do you worry about? Well, when I was under five, the answer would have been everything. Uh, I was such a worrier that I had to go and see a specialist uh, in Chessington Hospital uh, when I was four years old. I was getting constant sort of tummy aches and feeling sick. And and I thought, I'm, I'm a, one of the life's natural worriers. I think of my father's extended family. I had so many of them had duodenal ulcers because they all worried. And uh, I've recognized since there's a lot to worry about in life, isn't there? So many things can go wrong. When I was four or five, I was worried about missing buses and what would be in my packed lunch. Uh, And on it goes. So what do you worry about? What do you worry? How do you cope with it? Well, that's what we're going to look at in part, because behind this passage, as Paul has looked at serving in the gospel, chapter one, and serving like the king who is our servant savior, chapter two, and serving in the long haul, chapter three, He comes to chapter four and in his mind, he knows what the greatest dangers of serving in the long haul they really are. Because Jesus told us, Jesus once told a story, what uh, we often call parables. And it was the parable of the sower. And a man went out to sow seeds and some seed fell on hard ground and it, it, it never brought any fruit. But some grew, but the sun came up and it soon withered. But some fell into the soil and it began to grow and it looked great. But alongside it were growing thorns and thistles and weeds. And they grew together and gradually the thistles, the seed, the weeds wrapped themselves around and choked to death the good seed and it bore forth no fruit. But some fell in good soil and it grew and it brought forth fruit. And his disciples said, Jesus, what is this all about? And he said, this is what it's like when you hear the Bible explained. For some people, it's almost as if they hear it and don't hear it at all. Others go, oh, interesting, but soon fall backwards. But the most dangerous kind is those who go, oh, this is great. But over the next two or three or four decades, alongside growing, comes choking And Jesus said the two things that can choke you to death spiritually, the worries of this life or the deceitfulness of riches. Either middle-aged adversity, and you know if you're middle-aged, you know you've got aging parents, growing kids, and you are changing, let the reader know. You've got these many, many pressures on you in middle-aged. Am I through my career? Do I matter anymore? Are we still in love? Will the children turn out okay? What about the one that's fluffed university? All those pressures can cause us to begin to doubt that God really either loves us or is even there at all. Or, conversely, middle-aged prosperity. Great. (laughs) Paid the mortgage off. Kids are through university. They've got good jobs. Uh, Mum and dad have passed on and left us a great inheritance because we are the first generation of property owners. It could not be better. And Sundays, well, it's the great relaxation day and I'll fit God in because I don't really need him anymore. Not that I feel it that way. Now, those two issues of abounding in wealth 
or being in poverty's veil directly are addressed in this passage. Paul talks about living in plenty or living in want. Behind that are those two great dangers that Jesus warned us of as we go on as Christians. Are you going to be choked to death by anxiety or are you going to be deceived into thinking God is completely irrelevant because life is wonderful? The worries of this life or the deceitfulness of riches. How are you going to cope in the long haul? He's just mentioned the long haul. Chapter three, he's pressing on. But now he takes a very honest look and gives us, as it were, antidotes to anxiety and the secret of living life, whether we are abounding or we are struggling. So this is what we're going to look at in our morning. We'll see there are three sections. We're going to have to do, we're going to have to motor fast. When I said to Phil, we'll cover the whole of Philippians in four talks. I thought, what am I let myself in for? But even worse, what are you let yourself in for? Motoring through Philippians in four short talks. So let's move on. The first section is this. Follow these three commands. There are three commands in uh, verse four, uh, five and six. And the first one is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Serve Jesus joyfully. So to do that, you need to be be joyful. Now, it's really important, isn't it, to understand what that means. It's not try and smile and pretend. Uh, you know when uh, you bring friends around and your children out, be on your best behavior. At least be nice to them. You know that. And you, is Paul just commanding Christians to pretend that it's all fine? No, no. The, the key words are not rejoice. The key words are in the Lord. They're the key words. He's not talking about superficial fun. Did you have some fun yesterday? Yes. Can you have fun by not being a Christian? Well, of course you can have fun. But you can't know deep, lasting joy in this life unless you connect to God's son, Jesus Christ. You can see illustrations galore on that. You you find rich, unhappy people. You find successful, unhappy people. Beneath the exterior of, oh, look at them, haven't they done well, are empty shells of humanity. Whereas he gives us the answer. It starts with learning to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He's told us once before, chapter 3, verse 1, but we're slow learners, aren't we? So rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, (laughs) rejoice. What he's saying is lift your eyes up. If you look around to your circumstances, whether you are struggling or abounding, if your joy depends on what's going on around you, you will never know lasting joy. Because what happens around you is always changing. We all know that through our lives, don't we? Sometimes that change is dramatic. The crash, the financial crash of 07 brought many people's happiness to a fairly rapid end because their pension pot almost disappeared. The house is now in negative equity and their company has just made them redundant. Prosperity can take off with wings, can't it? Health, who knows what the next scan is going to show. We all know that. So if we depend on what's going on around us for our deep-seated joy and happiness, we're going to be disappointed people. 
So it's upwards to Jesus. And he will not change. He will not let you down. He who began a good work in you will complete it. You are a Christian in a way that an adoptive parent adopts a child. I chose you. I want you. I love you. I am never going to let you go. Jesus died for our sins on the cross. They are all forgiven. He is the constant source of joy. The king of the universe loves me and gave himself for me. There is always a source of joy in him. In fact, Philippians goes out of its way to remind us that because quite often in the New Testament, he's called Jesus the Christ. Christ is the title, a bit like Prince Charles. Prince is the title, Charles is the name. Jesus is the name, Christ is the title. But in Philippians, they're reversed. It's nearly always Christ Jesus, King Jesus. Only a couple of times in the, in the letter where he wants to emphasize Jesus' humanity, he says Jesus Christ. But nearly every other time, it's Christ Jesus. King Jesus loves me and gave himself for me. He didn't have to do that, but he wanted to do that because he wanted my sins forgiven and he wanted me reconciled with the Father. That is the source of unending joy. Rejoice in the Lord. That's the first command. But the second one, be gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Sometimes if someone is overflowing with hearty laughter, it can be really depressing when you're going through a, 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 um, a tough time. Kind of. Somebody comes up and says, slaps you on the back and says, oh, never mind, Ray, it'll be fine. Ha, ha, ha. You, kinda, you feel crushed, don't you? You, you? Just when you're going through a difficult time, you don't want somebody to make superficial light of it. It'll all be all, all right. No, no, joy with gentleness is really important in the Christian life, isn't it? We understand ourselves and manage ourselves well, but we also understand others and manage them. It's called emotional intelligence. It's understanding that other people tick differently. Very few people really are attracted to someone who is such a big ego and a, a phenomenal persona. Just overawes you. Gentleness is an incredibly attractive thing, isn't it? It's what wins us to Jesus. In the end of the day, it's his words, I am humble and gentle of heart and you will find rest for your souls. Once we begin to realize who we are, we have rebelled against our maker. We have broken all his laws. We've kept him at arm's length. And he is almighty God. It is quite a scary reality. But when that same God says, I am humble and gentle of heart, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. And you think, well, if he says all, it must mean me. And if he promises that he will never turn anyone away, well, then I can come. And when he tells me that I can cast my care on him because he cares for me, my heart is won by his graciousness. And we need to model that with one another. Because just as you're going through a time where you have every reason to be prosperous, somebody else might be going through a nightmare you know nothing of. At home, we often talk about uh, 
Everybody I know, and in a pastor in a church for a long time, you know a lot of stuff about people. And I know that, I don't know of anyone that lives such a robust life that they've got not significant pressures on them. We often think, do not throw stones at your brothers and sisters because you and they live in glass houses. They've got an aging mother that's got dementia. You didn't even know their mother was alive, but this is a significant anxiety cause for them. They may have a son who's struggling at school and you don't even know that. Don't throw stones because just as you've got pressures, they have to be gentle. Christian leaders especially are told, let your gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness means then they therefore can approach you. If they think that, that you're going to bark at them like a dog, they won't come near. If they know that you're approachable, it means that the community will function well. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And then finally, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. What he's saying is this. It's not enough to stop something. You need to start something else. Now, we're not talking here about all issues to do with mental health. He's not trying to bring all issues to do with personality disorders or mental health issues and put them all in one box and saying, let's put the lid on it and say, don't do it. But we're talking about what is common for many of us. That tendency to get tense when we don't need to be. The tendency to keep on going round and round and round and round in our own minds. That tendency to, you know, our muscles tighten up. Our stomach feels as if it's in a pit. Those kind of constant anxieties that can keep on questioning, is God there? And does he care? He says, don't, don't give in to that, that temptation to say, God, where are you just where I need you the most? What has he just said? The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Therefore, don't be anxious about anything. But instead of anxiety, replace anxiety, that furtive circling around in your mind, replace it with prayer. And he uses comprehensive terms, all kinds of prayers, requests, prayers, thanksgiving prayers. General prayers, pray. Pray instead of going round and round in your mind. Present your requests to God. And what happens when you do that? Notice what happens to you. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. He's not saying don't think. He's not saying don't get help. The same writer Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, take a little wine for your constantly irritated stomach. Uh, Timothy, one of his young helpers, was struggling with a medical issue. He didn't say, just pray about it. He said, take some wine. There's a right place for medical intervention. There's a right place for getting advice. There's a right place in thinking a problem through and coming up with a wise solution. But there's a right place, too, where you... Well, in the words of the Apostle Peter, a fisherman, what does a fisherman do with a net? He casts the net. He throws the net into the water. And it's the job is being done over there. So you cast your anxiety on God. Let God worry about it. 
Remember, he is the almighty and you are not. You never have to be. You never will be. So don't try and bear the weight of being the almighty guardian of your own life. Your father is that. So cast your anxiety on him. And in one sense, let him worry about it. And you'll find is that in a sense, God is in control. I told you I was a terrible worrier when I was a youngster. I think I had my really last bad worrying tummy ache when I was about 21, 22. I can remember sitting in a, being sick all day in a room at Fitzwilliam College. I don't know what I was worrying about, but in the mercy of God, that was the last kind of attack I had. And then since then, I've had to learn as a natural worrier to trust God. And in the kindness of God, all kinds of things have come across my path as as they do in life. But God has proved himself true to his word. We can trust him with everything. But he moves on. And the next thing he says, finally, brothers and sisters, in that mind that would keep on constantly going, pouring over the issue... Brothers and sisters, instead, think about whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about that. The the battle starts in your thought life. So think about lovely things. Uh, It was great hearing earlier, wasn't it? What did you enjoy about yesterday? And I want to put up my hand and say, the swimming pool, it was great. It was great. The food, it was great. Think about anything that's wonderful and admirable. It doesn't have to be churchy. It can be anything. The sunset, God's gift for your enjoyment. Think about it. Think about those things, anything and anywhere that is true and lovely and admirable. Now, this isn't just a first century form of the power of positive thinking. If only you are positive. But it does go a long way, doesn't it? I, um, I, I love playing sport. My kids are all fairly sporty. And the, one of the funniest things is when I, I, I play golf really badly. But I sometimes go and play golf with my two sons. And it is a real lesson in psychological warfare. Because the second son is a really good golfer. But the first son is extremely cunning. And uh, he will put off his younger brother uh, just as he's about to hit his first drive, oh, rich, and oh, oh. And, and he just cre- he plays a mind game because golf is a game you play between your two ears, really, as much sport is. And though his younger brother is a much better golfer, Christopher is psychologically adept. <laughs> and by the fourth or fifth hole, Richard is hitting the ball all over the place, and Chris is just kind of naturally, kind of gleefully smiling at how he's. He's ruined his brother's golf game before we've even got halfway round because he's just chipped away at being negative. And I am negative when I'm playing golf and I'm always tut-tutting. And, and the, me and I do it unconsciously negative. My eldest is consciously cleverly negative. So our son, who is a credible positive personality, is destroyed by negativity pretty quickly. Him and me together can wreck Richard's golf game. Now, does it make a difference if you think positively? Answer, yes, it does. And here Paul says, look, don't focus on the negative. 
albeit the worst that evil human beings can do, look to God's good hands, as it were, fingerprints, handiwork, everywhere around you. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And of course, think about the most excellent person you know. If we can think about excellent things, think about an excellent person. Rejoice in the Lord always. But not just what you think. Look at what you do. What you can do about it. We looked at this yesterday. We haven't time to look now. But whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, seen in me, put it into practice. Follow good examples. You are an example. Be an example. But above all, be an example of a follower of Jesus. In our world, we're always told to be our own person, aren't we? Uh, Steve Jobs, the big um, Apple man, he before he uh, he gave a, a speech once to a whole load of young students, said, you know, don't listen to what other people say. Be the person you want to be, the person inside of you. Live your own life your own way. Of course, the irony of all that is don't listen to me telling you to don't listen to other people. It's kind of weird, really. But uh, this, the, you know, this release the inner you. Christianity is incredibly countercultural at that point, isn't it? Saying, no, I'm always a follower. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus. And I want you to follow me as I follow him. We're all Christians. We're followers. We're not out the front setting the pace. Jesus has done that. We are walking in his footsteps. And that is a lovely thing to do. So always remember you are both a follower and an example and don't just leave Christianity in the mind, translate it into life. That's his first antidote to anxiety. But he moves on and he moves on to this. He then comes across this issue about, well, you know the problem, discontent. There is a whole industry called the advertising industry that's that's brilliant at making you slightly discontent. Not terribly unhappy because it still wants you to spend your money. So it makes you enough discontent. Now in the past, it used to be you need this thing, this thing, this object. You need to own this. To be happy, you need this. Have you noticed advertising has subtly changed? It is now you need this experience. It's not so much now selling you something, it's selling you some feeling. You will feel wonderful if, you'll have heard that euphemistic phrase, the bucket list. The bucket, what I want to do before I kick the bucket. And, and what is all that about? That is about experiences, it's not about how much I own. And you'll notice now, many young people, it's not so much I want a house, I want a car, I want a good car, I want nice holidays, I want a holiday home. Now is, I want to travel the world. I, I want to go to Machu Picchu. If possible, I want to climb something high. I want to dive into something clear with wonderful... It's experiences. The advertising agencies are selling to make you, in one sense, discontent with humdrum life in Hove when there's this whole world out there to explore. How could you be possibly happy living in Hove when you could go? You see, that's what the advertising industry does to you. It does it brilliantly. It doesn't assault you in the face. 
It just subtly undermined your sense of contentment. I mean, you imagine you go, if, if you went on BBC and said, and what's life like for you? And you say, I am content. And that equals boring, dull. Isn't it? Our whole society is heaving with frustration of I've not got or I'm not, I'm not am what I want to be. I haven't been to where I want to be. How many people, quite honestly, ever get anywhere near fulfilling their bucket list? Because when they get to Machu Picchu and there's all these other hundreds of tourists around, it's awful. Remember the very first time we saw the Mona Lisa? I couldn't get anywhere near it. And by the time I got there, found it, you know, in the Louvre, you're nearly dying. Not enough oxygen in the Louvre. Get me out of this place. You think, if that is seeing the Mona Lisa, you can keep it. So many people are soul discontentment. And they live their lives moving from one thing to another, trying to find this elusive thing called contentment. One of Jenny's friends once, she, they weren't able to have any children and they, they traveled the world. And Jenny met this lady and she said, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to the place. I've, I've been to Australia, New Zealand, or North Africa. I've gone everywhere. But the one place I want to go, I've never been. We're going to the Maldives. Go to the Maldives. Oh, marvelous. Well, only about three or four months later, Jenny bumped into the lady and said, oh, your holiday. What was it like? And she said, it was all right. The one place on the planet you want to go that would give you the ultimate three months later was just all right. See, that is the deceitfulness of our culture. That's why we are discontented people, because we're trying to find the contentment in the wrong place. But he says, that's the problem. Here's the the secret. I've learned the secret of being content. When I could be deceived by life's riches or overwhelmed by life's poverty, I've learned the secret. What is this secret? The secret is I've learned to trust God, the solution. I've learned the secret of being contented. I have come to learn to trust God. I know what it is to have need and I know what it is to have plenty. I know that I can trust God. I thank him for the good. I trust him with the difficult. I can do all this through him who who gives me strength. What a secret to learn, isn't it? You see, in one of the great antidotes to anxiety, the first section was praying. The emphasis here is trusting Don't keep it a secret if you've learnt that. Pass it on to your brothers and sisters because some of them haven't learnt that secret yet because it's not an easy secret to learn, is it? To learn to trust God when you are in need is not an easy thing to learn. But if you have learnt that and you have proven God's faithfulness, encourage others when they're going through those times of difficulty. Show them where the secret The answer to the secret lies, again, in the Lord. And his final section, he gives them thanks. And what he says this as he comes to the end of his section, where he's trying to combat these things that wear us down in our Christian discipleship. Verse 14 onwards, it was good of you to share in my troubles You'll see he talks of several times, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me, but you did. 
they have learnt to share. Paul shares his experiences and we need to do that with one another. He talks about those experiences early in his life. We have all had experiences of God being faithful when we thought, well, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Now, that's not glib. When someone tells you a heart's burden, you don't go, oh, yes, I know exactly what you mean. I've gone through just the same. None of us have. We need to be good listeners, but we can share our experiences. And we can share our stuff. One of the great antidotes, if we are abounding in prosperity, is to be generous with it to others. They were. You Philippians, you shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. You sent gifts. Verse 17, not that I desire your gifts, but but it was a huge encouragement that you shared. Now, what have we got to share? Some of us have got finances to share. Some of us have got time to share. Some of us have got treasure talents to share, gifts to share. We can share, and as we give away, we find ourselves no longer holding on to it as if it's mine, but God has entrusted it to me to share. We can share stuff. Now, what the stuff you have, it might be two glasses and you share a cup of cold water together. That's lovely. You give somebody time over a a coffee in Costa Coffee this week. You share something with them. It may be you can share in a much more profound way. But sharing stuff. And of course, finally, sharing love. Sharing love. The thing that really touches his heart the most is this sense of you shared not only stuff, but you shared yourselves. And he, in the end there, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters are with me. Send greetings. All God's people send greetings. We're sharing love, which is exactly where we started in chapter one, isn't it? We shared in the gospel. We came to love the Lord and love one another. As he comes to the end of his letter, What is the thing you can share the most? You can share the love of God with one another. So he writes to these dear Christians, and that message is still speaking to us. We can serve joyfully because we are in this together, sharing what God has done in our lives, what God has done for us in Christ and in our lives. We can spur one another on so that we can serve the king All our days. And notice why can we do all this? Well, notice how he ends. Verse 19. My God will meet all your needs. According to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a lovely way to end, isn't it? He turns our eyes away from ourselves And back up to God and saying, our father is giving God and he will go on giving for eternity. He will be pouring his blessings into our lives and will never come to the end of God's givingness. It's a bit like a fish in the ocean. You can go on swimming forever in the ocean of God's grace. So the Christian church is not just a club where we try and 
help one another. It is a family of a father who has given his one and only son. And we can rest in him and keep on looking to him. Whatever needs you have individually or as a church, as Phil said, come to the prayer meeting because that's where we look up. And we remind ourselves, our God will meet all our needs according to the bank balance that's in Christ Jesus. It's inexhaustible. And he's not stingy. So if you're struggling this morning, the antidote to the anxiety is to keep looking to the Lord. Hearing his word, taking it into your life and proving him to be the faithful, gracious God he so evidently is in Jesus, his son. Amen.